Welcome back to the 18th Century Podcast, I'm your host CJ. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the subject of the English dinner party from the 18th century. I'll be going over a few recipes too. Some of the food mentioned and the recipes provided in this episode I got from the 18th century cooking series on YouTube put out by Townsend's. I'll be providing links to their videos at the bottom of the uh, script post for this episode. If you'd like to read the script for this episode and its citations, go to 18thcentury.home.blog. That's 18thcentury.home.blog. Type the numbers, don't spell them. Let's begin this episode by taking a look at a uh, dinner party from the 18th century. I think talking about the dinner itself is a good place to commence. We'll be taking a look at this from primarily an English perspective, more specifically for the upper class. Dinner was a very formal meal. You could say it was regarded as the most important meal. There were instances of uh, women taking the time to change their clothes specifically for dinner. Men would also prepare themselves for dinner, but would usually take less time than women. It was important especially for the young to dress well, for if they were single, uh, these dinners might uh, lead to courtship. Dessert after the dinner was considered less formal than the dinner itself. Each house had its own set time for dinner, and the hours would vary. When having guests, the dinner would commence once the lady of the house would request the most prominent woman guest to bring the other ladies to the table. Going off of this cue, the master of the house would do the same for the men. The host and hostess would seat themselves first. The master would sit at the foot of the table, and the lady would sit at the head. After this, the most senior lady would pick her place at the table. Once she sat, the other guests were free to pick their spots. However, it was more socially acceptable to place oneself regarding social rank. During the first half of the century, guests were expected to bring their own flatware, but that custom was uh, disregarded during the second half of the century. Forks would be placed on the left, and spoons with knives would be placed on the right. You would not eat with a fork, though. The fork was reserved for holding meat in place while you cut it. The knives were broad at the time and did not come to a point. You would place your food on your knife and consume it using that utensil. When the dinner knives lost their point at the end, we began to see the beginnings of toothpicks. An interesting piece regarding napkins as they were in use in the early part of the century. However, they fell out of favor for the English, being viewed as too French. Dinner guests were thus expected to wipe their mouths using the tablecloth instead. An interesting thing of note is once the guests were seated, the plates were not yet on the table. Kitchens were typically further away from the dining table, so once they reached the table, the uh, food was typically lukewarm. The plates were kept near a fire or specialty warmers while the food arrived. Plates were then placed in front of the guests, so the plate could act as a vessel to reheat the food. The wine or beer glasses were kept chilled with ice brought from an ice house. 
we can infer that they were using ice to chill their glasses it, as it was a, um, you could consider it a symbol of status. Ice was expensive, so if you could afford to use some, it was a subtle way to flaunt your wealth. The wealthy would eat off of porcelain plates, among other dishes, and they were typically white with a blue pattern upon them. Centerpieces were also common, and they could be a multitude of things, such as sugar sculptures. These centerpieces could have been used as a topic of conversation. Servants would handle the food and dishes on the table. The dinner would be served in multiple courses. How each course was arranged on the table was an art in and of itself, and there were books dedicated to the topic. Typically, there would be two courses and a dessert. Each course could contain anywhere from 5 to around 25 dishes. As a guest, you were not expected to try something from every dish. The layout would typically be as follows with some variation. Meat dishes in the middle of the table, sides would be on the corners, soup would be placed at one end, and fish at the other. The meal would begin uh, with the guests being served soup. Wine would be served with the meal. If you wished to take a drink, there was a sort of ritual to it. If a guest wished to take a drink, they first had to make eye contact with another guest, and then they would raise their glass. Once the person you made eye contact with raises their own glass, you uh, may take a sip. However, you then must wait for someone to make eye contact with you and raise a glass before you can take another sip during the dinner. Each guest would eat uh, from around two to three dishes per course. The amounts they took were at their own discretion. If a guest wanted something from across the table, they would have a servant retrieve it for them. Once the first course was complete, the dishes would be removed from the table. A new tablecloth, plates, and flatware were uh, brought forth to the guests. The second course would consist of lighter foods. Yes, there were meats, but there were also jellies and tarts. You could view this second course as a bridge between the first course and the dessert. Though other beverages were sometimes available, such as beer or ale, wine was preferred. Port and sherry were popular. I'd like to note, uh, you may find wine called sack, but sack was the equivalent of uh, sweet sherry. After the second course uh, was finished, the tablecloth would be removed and not replaced. Desserts would consist of small cakes, dried fruits, candied fruit, and the like. The gentlemen attending would drink port typically, and the ladies would consume a sweet wine. The dinner rules uh, relaxed once dessert was served. You no longer had to make eye contact with another to drink, you could simply drink. Other formalities, such as seating, went away with dessert. Guests could rearrange themselves to sit however they wished. The topics of conversation became more relaxed as more coarse, um, more uh, like crass or coarse topics were now allowed to be discussed. A curious rule regarding uh, relieving oneself was present during the actual dinner. It was considered rude to leave the table during the actual dinner if you felt uh, as though you had to use the bathroom. 
To accommodate for this, a chamber pot was kept off to the side of the room for guests to use so they could relieve themselves without breaking the flow of conversation. The dinner itself would last about two hours. But as you could imagine, variation was prevalent. Once the meal was complete, a glass of wine was served to each guest. When everyone had finished this glass of wine, the hostess would stand and a servant would open the doors. The ladies would follow their hostess out of the dining room and into the drawing room. The gentlemen would remain in the dining room, drinking and conversing with one another. Now, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at some of the foods served and the uh, preparations of the dinner parties. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We'll continue the second half of today's episode by briefly discussing 18th century recipes. I tried to find information about 18th century English kitchens, but there is surprisingly very little information about that topic online. So I'll be giving you three recipes that may have been consumed at an English dinner party. Some of the recipes I'm providing here came from the Townsend's YouTube series, 18th Century Cooking. On the blog post for this episode, I'll provide video links so you can follow along at home. I highly recommend watching their videos, as they are simply fantastic. The first recipe will come from Mrs. Glass's book, The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy. This is the only recipe that is not from the Townsend series. The recipe we will be making is called To Dress a Duck with Green Peas. As a side note, green peas were very popular during the 18th century. Alright, the recipe is as follows. Quote, Put a deep stew pan over the fire with a piece of fresh butter. Singe your duck and flour it. Turn it in the pan two or three minutes. Then pour out all of the fat, but let the duck remain in the pan. Put it, uh, put to it a pint of good gravy, a pint of peas, two lettuces cut small, a small bundle of sweet herbs, a little pepper and salt. Cover them close, and let them stew for half an hour. Now and then give, uh, then pan a shake. When they are just done, uh, grate in a little nutmeg and put in a very little beaten mace and thicken it either with a piece of butter rolled in flour or the yolk of an egg. Uh, Beat up with two or three spoonfuls of cream. Shake it all together for three or four minutes Take out the sweet herbs, lay the duck in the dish, and pour the sauce over it. You may garnish uh, with boiled mint, uh, chopped or with boiled, my apologies, garnish with boiled mint chopped or let it alone, unquote. Now, the directions for that recipe may be a little difficult to follow, so my apologies for the recipe, for the wording of that recipe, because language and measurements weren't exact back then. So, but the next two recipes are a little more exact and easier to follow along with. 
The uh, next recipe will be for a version of macaroni and cheese from the Townsend's video, Macaroni, a recipe from 1784. First, start by boiling 4 ounces of short tube pasta, which should uh, be around an inch and a half long. After it is finished boiling, strain the pasta through a sieve to let it dry. Uh, then put it in a uh, frying pan topped with a gill of heavy cream and a ball of butter rolled in flour. Place the pan over the fire or a stove for about 5 minutes. Take the pan off and put the contents in a bowl. Top it with a little parmesan, or no, sorry, top it with a lot of parmesan cheese and toast it with a salamander. You'll want the cheese to lightly brown. If you'd like, you could add a little pepper to top it off. Now that is how you make the macaroni and cheese. Sounds very good, and I think I might actually try that recipe out myself sometime. I've tried a couple of Townsend's recipes, and some turned out very good, some turned out not so good. I actually have an interesting story, but I'll save that for another day. So, our final recipe, will, which will also come from Townsend's, will make a cream puff, or as they title it, whipped cream like snow, not your typical whipped cream. To make this, start by boiling about one cup of water. Add about a tablespoon of sugar. Next, add a little lemon zest. Then, you'll want to add four ounces of butter. Then, add a little salt. Slowly add in flour while stirring, and when it begins to separate from the sides, take it off the uh, oven or fire. Let it cool a little, but still keep it warm. Add eggs in one by one and thoroughly stir each one in. You'll want it to uh, get it to a smooth, sil silky texture. Around three eggs should do. Add uh, blobs of the batter to a cooking sheet. Set your oven to 375 and put it in for about a half hour. While that's baking, begin the uh, work on the cream. To a large bowl, add a pint of heavy cream. Add sugar to taste. I'd recommend maybe about perhaps a quarter cup. Then juice of one lemon. Next, add about a cup of sack or sweet sherry. Then you'll want to whip, uh, uh, whip it to make whipped cream. Once the pastries are done in the oven, take them out and let them cool. Once they are cooled, cut the tops off. Take a bit of, of, take a bit of the center out of the pastries to make room for the cream. Spoon in the whipped cream. Uh, put the tops back on, and you're ready to eat 18th century cream puffs. Well, this brings us to the end of this episode of the 18th Century Podcast. I hope you found this episode as interesting as I did, and maybe I'll do a few more episodes like this in the future if you guys want. I think food episodes are interesting, so one of the next few episodes will probably be more about interactive history, about how to maybe throw your own uh, English-style dinner party from the 18th century. The script and citations for this episode and all other episodes can be found at 18thcentury.home.blog. That's 18thcentury.home.blog. Type the numbers, don't spell them. 
If you'd like to support the show, please share it and leave a review. I have been your host, CJ, and thank you for listening to this episode of the 18th Century Podcast.